If one of the hardest things to figure out these days is what to watch next, first of all, congrats. Second of all, you should check out HBO Max. Discover something new to watch on HBO Max like Lovecraft Country, the new HBO series from Jordan Peele, Misha Green, and J.J. Abrams that's got everyone buzzing. Plus, HBO Max is the only place you'll find new binge-worthy Max originals like Selena Gomez's new cooking show. You heard that right. Selena Gomez's Learning to Cook, from some of the world's best chefs, no less. Find your next favorite all in one place on HBO Max. Start streaming today. Download the app or visit hbomax.com to start your free trial. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Cellular. Let's talk about your cell phone carrier. When you think about your plan, does what you're getting feel fair? When it comes to staying connected, don't settle. When you switch to U.S. Cellular, not only do you upgrade to fair, you're also joining a reliable network you can trust to have your back. No hidden requirements, no activation fees. Now that's fair. Learn more at uscellular.com. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who invites people to parties the old-fashioned way, walking through the town with a bell and yelling at the top of my lungs. But in my spare time, I'm a technology journalist, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech, politics, and the media. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, we have two interviews for you. Later in the show, I'll be talking to the CEO of Evite, Victor Cho. But first, we're going to play a conversation I had with Eric Wu, the CEO of Opendoor. He and Ian Wong started the company in 2014, and they describe it as the modern way to buy, sell, or trade in a home. And according to the company's website, more than 460,000 people in 20 cities have asked Opendoor to make them an offer on their homes. I wanted Eric to come on the show because Open Door seems like the closest thing to the next Airbnb, a startup that's really been doing something interesting with the physical spaces we live in. I'm also interested in this because I started buying houses in my early 20s, but Eric has me beat. He's been at it since he was a teenager. This could obviously be very controversial, but we started out by talking about the ways in which housing and real estate have been disrupted by technology. Housing and real estate is going through you know, four distinct changes. The first was uh, taking offline content and moving it online. And, and right. Zillow, Redfin, Trulia. This is putting pictures Realtor. of houses, exactly. the history of the buying and selling of yeah, houses. Yeah, just making the information more transparent. And mm-hmm. I think the next chapter was uh, people are trying to build um, efficiency in, into the system. So how, how do you build tooling for agents? How do mm-hmm. you make their small business uh, more efficient? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we're taking the, the third step, which is how do we build the consumer experience that is direct. How do we make it simpler, more efficient, and more delightful so people feel comfortable transacting themselves? When you started to move it to this next level, talk about sort of the, the power structure of real estate agents, because I think they're sort of, they're all independent for the most part, but there's certain, like, trends away from gatekeepers like that. Well, I do think that, that you know, in 2005, that was the first step, which is how do you just make the information transparent and online mm-hmm. so that people can access it, whether you're a realtor or not. I think that's actually changed the role of a realtor over mm-hmm. time. I, I think um, realtors will have to evolve to be advisors. They'll have to provide expertise and not just information and help you through the process, which is still, I believe today, too complicated, too many steps, too windy, too expensive. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think as um, Open Door continues to expand and evolve and, and scale, I, I think we'll also automate a lot of the process of buying and selling real estate. And I think the role of an agent will also have to evolve. So let's talk first about your founding, then we'll talk about how that yeah. happens. Because yeah, yeah. it's really, it's, it is interesting to see if it's actually possible for people to move that 
quickly. But when you, so you started the company, you were buying and selling houses. You worked in a bunch of different places. Talk about that. Yeah. So I graduated college and I kind of knew I wanted to be uh, an entrepreneur and a founder Mm -hmm. and work in real estate tech specifically. So fast forward to 2009, I started a company called Movity, and we aggregated location data. Mm-hmm. And crime was our largest database, but um, we wanted to provide insights to consumers on how cities transformed and where to live and how they influenced real estate pricing. Went through YC, and uh, during the fundraising process— Y Combinator. Y Combinator. And it was not as big as it is today. Back mm-hmm. then, I think we had uh, 20 companies in mm-hmm. my batch. But uh, during the fundraising process, uh, everyone was like, you need to talk to a guy named Keith Raboy. Mm-hmm. And um, I was oh, like, he why? he loves houses. Yeah, because he loves real estate. <laughs> he, <does. laughs> he fights with his neighbors. He's, yeah. He, he and I talk he enjoys about real estate. estate. He does. And so I, I ended up meeting with him uh, at Sports Club LA, which is a kind of a weird place to meet. Pitched him on the idea. Mm-hmm. Within three minutes, he was pitching me on his idea, mm-hmm. which is kind of like a, a different thing for an investor to do. But at the time, he, he thought about it as how can you use the data that we were aggregating and build a better pricing model mm-hmm. to trade real estate against. Right. And it looked more like Priceline uh, for real estate than Open Door does today. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a pretty bold idea at the time, and, and I had already kind of been in flight of building this company centered around how do we provide insights to consumers as they're moving between cities right. um, and continue that path. And so Keith ended up what leading was the, the round. Well, how did you make money at that company? It was a, a B2B play in the end. We right. ended up uh, licensing the data to uh, different companies, mm-hmm. and then we sold to Trulia mm-hmm. in 2011. Which is one of the real estate companies. Like yeah, and, and so one of the things that um, Trulia had had this thesis that if you can combine both the housing data with location data, then it, you can build a better experience for consumers. Mm-hmm. So I spent two years at Trulia um, integrating some of the location data and working on the product, talking to customers, and, and really trying to dig in to figure out, okay, what are the pain points uh, when people are buying and selling a home. Mm-hmm. Um, I left Trulia in 2013, really with the intention to start what at the time an overused kind of uh, analogy, which is the Amazon for real estate. Mm-hmm. But I had realized that um, search was mostly solved. Right. And so you can go to Redfin, you go to Trulia, you can go to Zillow to look at information online. And there's, yeah, there's certain differences in search filters and sure, that, but sure. I, I think consumers kludgy. are pretty satisfied. It's still kludgy. I think so? Yeah, I do. I think a lot of the features that you need to find a home have been built. And yes, so a lot of the filters... Kludgy, still kludgy. I, I think a lot of the pain points are mm-hmm. actually in the offline experience. Right, right, right. And so kind of came to the conclusion that, okay, it's not sufficient But enough. you're right, search is... It's, it's, we're far along in search. Yeah, I, I think... Like early Google, early Yahoo. Yeah, it feels like a 2005 type of uh, yeah. product still. And, right. and you know, what, what was confusing to me actually was that the experience itself was you look for a home with the app and it's similar across a lot of the websites. Mm-hmm. And you just bounce to a realtor. And so the experience kind of goes, look yourself. When you want to visit houses, uh, your lead kind of goes to a realtor. Right. And that's the interaction. Right. And it's all offline after that. So it's just informational. Informational. Imagine like you you found a car you wanted to take and you have to like call a broker to somehow figure out how to take that ride. Sometimes they try to make you do, which I never do. You can do it online almost completely. So I reconnected with Keith in late 2013. uh, And guess where we met? Sports Club LA. I was thinking Four Seasons in San yeah, Francisco. Yeah, that's true. Also, also <laughs> good office. place to meet VCs. <laughs> right. And talk through uh, really what the original idea that I had, which is like, how do you make buying a home one click and using mm-hmm. financing as a uh, a tool, which is in SF in particular, it's really hard to, to buy a home if you don't pay cash. And, mm-hmm. and again, the, the transaction is quite complicated. So we kind of ideated around, okay, how do you actually make the transaction less than five minutes? His approach was more of uh, around homeowners selling, and mm-hmm. I wanted to do home buying in one tap. 
Anyway, so we, uh, I built a website in late 2013. It was called Open Door Realty at the time. .com, and the tagline was sell your home online in five minutes or less. Mm-hmm. And I bought some AdWords and, and kind of talked to a bunch of homeowners across the nation. And so it wasn't specific to a city, I just looking to do customer development. And it was clear that if you can pay a reasonable price and remove all of the time and hassle from the transaction, people would say yes. Mm-hmm. And so if you talk to consumers saying, okay, what are you worried about? It's about lining up the transactions, about dealing with all the stress. Right. Um, and if, if you can house. actually remove all of that, and selling home is a massive life disruption. Right. And one thing that's more nuanced is that people are using their equity in their home as a down payment into the mm-hmm. next house. And so lining up two transactions is like logistically impossible. Right. So people will list their house, they'll move into parents' basement, or they'll borrow money to buy the next house. And so it's just this really windy, nightmarish mm-hmm. process. Right. So initially you were not going you were doing buying houses. You wanted you thought well, I, Keith I, I, thought selling, buying people's houses, right? Yeah, I think I think the problem in SF is buying. Right. right? It, it's a supply constrained market. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to purchase. And so the pain points people have when you talk to people here is that buying a house is really painful, but selling is pretty easy. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and then and if you talk to, to people in every other market outside of SF and New York, it's the right. opposite. Right. It's that selling house takes too long. It's too complicated. It's too stressful. And again, they're using the down payment as the, the equity in their home as the down payment of the next house. So how do you make it really, really simple and convenient, but also deliver on uh, certainty? Hence buying of people's homes. Exactly. Right. Um, and so I remember uh, we said, okay, it seems like there's something here after I built the first version of the website and talked to consumers mm-hmm. and wanted to a full go. And obviously, the business is multifaceted. It's quite complicated. There's, there's lots right. of different components. So we, we knew we needed capital. And, and I sat in a room with Keith and, and said, okay, let, let's raise some money. And uh, he said, well, you know, uh, Kosla will lead the first round. And he was a, a GP at Kosla at the time. And he asked me how much money I wanted. And, and this is before kind of the, the mega seed right. rounds that right. exist today. Right. Um, we didn't have a deck. We just kind of, you know, we just had an idea. So I just, I said, let's raise $10 million. Um, mm-hmm. And Kosla said, okay, let's, let's do the round. So that was kind of the, the first round. We spent the next year kind of building the team, looking for co-founders and, and some of the early founding members. Um, and then we, the first task was to build a pricing model. Um, that you can uh, rely on, right. which is not an easy task. Yeah. All right. So you started really, we're going to get to more in a second, but you started in Phoenix, correct? Because that's where, why there? Well, we, we, I'll tell you the real story, but I'll okay. tell you some of the logic. So like, okay. you know, Phoenix is representative of the vast majority of housing in, right. in which is uh, too the many US. houses, not enough buyers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, subject to the vicissitudes of the economy, essentially. Yeah, and I, I think um, the pricing model works better in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. The homes are more homogenous. Uh, there's... Uh, less seasonality, um, so there's not kind of a, uh, we call it deep freeze. Mm-hmm. It's like there's no real estate activity in the winter. Right. But in Phoenix, is like actually home right, sell right. year-round. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a, that's a lot of the logic. It kind of, the median uh, sales price is 275 which is right. uh, real close to the median in the U.S., mm-hmm. and the homes are uh, more homogenous. Uh, but the reality is I had done a bunch of real estate in Arizona, and so I had a, a good feel of the market, uh, had operations already kind of set up there, and it was easy to get licensed in, in Phoenix. Which you have to be in order mm-hmm. to buy homes. Well, there's two components. We have to be licensed to sell homes on MLS, which mm-hmm. is we do some of that, right. a lot of that. And the second piece is we uh, need the data to build the algorithm. To build so, the algorithm. Yeah. 
All right. We're here with Eric Wu. He's the co-founder and CEO of Open Door. It's one of the most interesting. I find it really interesting, but I'm a real estate uh, demented person. Uh, but it's a really interesting idea of how much you can apply digitization to almost anything analog. We're going to take a quick break now, and we'll be back after this. Searching for what to stream next? HBO Max is where all of HBO meets the greatest collection of movies, shows, and Max originals for everyone in the family. Discover something fresh to watch with new HBO series like Lovecraft Country from Jordan Peele, Misha Green, and J.J. Abrams, or The Undoing, starring Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant. You can also jump into a new Max original like Selena Gomez's new cooking show, Selena and Chef, or The Flight Attendant, a dark new comedic thriller starring Kaylee Cuoco. Ridley Scott's even producing a new series called Raised by Wolves. Whether you want to rewatch classic favorites or finally get into that show your friends have recommended a thousand times, HBO Max has something for everyone. Start streaming today and find your next favorite. Download the app or visit hbomax.com to start your free trial. If you're an early adopter, you get that your devices and your connections need to be fast and help make your life better. But you might be forgetting one thing. Tech should be fair, too. Fairness isn't a new idea, but it is to wireless. That's where U.S. Cellular comes in. At U.S. Cellular, people come first. And that means a fast, reliable connection with no hidden requirements and no activation fees. They'll even pay you back for unused data. When you upgrade to U.S. Cellular, you upgrade to FAIR. Learn more at uscellular.com. We're here with Eric Wu, the co-founder and CEO of Open Door. Open Door, um, Eric, how would you describe it? You buy and sell houses, essentially. Well, right? we we allow you to sell a home online in in a few minutes. Okay, or, and we allow you to buy a home in in a few clicks. In and a so, few clicks. Okay. Yeah, we want to make we want to make the experience of buying and selling real estate. Uh, self-service and on-demand. So the so selling is you pick a number for the house based on data. Like mm-hmm. this is what this house will sell for. If, we, if this is what the house is worth, this is what you're going to get. And then you back out costs that you have someone go there to see what needs to be renovated, what needs to be fixed, whatever that happens to be. Yeah, a lot, you, a lot of homes have deferred maintenance. Right. And so these are these are homes that have been lived in for a Roots, number of years, and, and not everyone is. You know, maintaining the home to yes. uh, you know retail conditions, so like, we have to. I do. I okay. Think, literally, you're, yeah, my house you're, is you're atypical. Pristine. So you back out the cost of those, and then you charge them. It pulls out of the sale price, correct? Right. So we we do an inspection uh, in person, and we figure out, okay, are there any um, issues with the home? And in some cases, there not are not. In some mm-hmm. cases, there are, and we we give you. Uh, the inspection report for free, and you can decide whether you want to uh, accept the offer or not. And then if we do, uh, in fact, move forward with the transaction, we charge you a transaction uh, fee. It's a service charge. Right. Um, we think about it as delivering certainty and convenience uh, for a fee, and it's roughly 1% more than you would pay a realtor. So one of the complaints that people have is that you're you're getting inexpensive housing because people want the money. Like, they, they want the ease, that you're paying for the ease. How would you answer that concept? Well, I, I think it, it's today we are charging a slight premium to mm-hmm. realtors, and we think about it as paying for certainty and convenience. Mm-hmm. Certainty and, meaning you bought, will buy this house. There are houses you don't buy, correct? There are some. Yeah, there's some houses we don't buy. So that you know, we we don't buy luxury, mm-hmm. and we'll um, get to that in a minute because luxury is a really difficult area. I think it's hard to price. Yeah, and so yeah. we can do it, but um, because of the variance in the model. 
we have to charge a steeper discount. Right. So the spread has to be a little higher than we're comfortable charging. We don't want to be known as something someone that charges a very high fee. And so right. that's that's one piece. And there's you know we cover sixty percent of the market with our price points. Right, because most markets are like Phoenix. They're exactly. Like, they're like so you but but the idea that you lowball people on prices on their prices. I mean that, that's just untrue. So like. We build the model based on data that's back-tested, and so the mean error is zero, mm-hmm. um, and we deliver that to customers. And there's one little nuance, which is when we do renovate, we, when we do repair homes, mm-hmm. we do expect to charge a premium for that, which is right. we're putting work into the system. And so if you think about it in the auto space, there's kind of the retail price and the as-is price yes. or the private yeah, party price. And true. I think in real estate, there's this notion of as-is versus like after repair value. And mm-hmm. so there's a little bit of a spread there, but uh, the model itself is back-tested. We you Which most people do themselves when they're selling a house. They tend to fix things and... Yeah, and I, I think one of the, there's a couple of nuances, which is like there's this notion of ownership bias. So if you mm-hmm. live in the house for a long time, you, you have a tendency to overvalue. You've painted the walls a certain mm-hmm. color, and you, you think that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing is people do look at uh, list price right. on the market as value, mm-hmm. uh, but that isn't closed price. And so the model that we build, obviously, is, is based on you know, what Well, cars what is a really good for. analogy. Car, as is cars versus what you can get from the dealer, what you can get if you sell it yourself. So so then you're getting on the selling side, too. So you have all these houses, which you renovate, and you use partners to renovate in, in different markets, local markets, correct? Yeah. It was one of the things that um, is not uh, well known about the company is that uh, we have 11,000 subcontractors on our platform mm-hmm. um, servicing homes. Right. And we build technology and, and apps for them. I mean, think about it as like Lyft's driver app or Uber's driver app. People can come on and, and actually claim tasks and you know, uh, paint homes and, and install carpet and so on and so forth. Um, and, and then we actually uh, build a marketplace on top of the homes. And so right. uh, with our app, you can shop any home owned by Open Door. We make it self-service so you can visit the house anytime you like. You get a personal open house um, so you don't need to find a realtor and, and kind of and know, negotiate with them. Opening, and yeah. So it's on your schedule. Yeah. And we want to enable you to make an offer with just the app, get qualified for financing, and then personalize the home and close. And All so, right. So the financing, you guys have now offering mortgages. You had partnered before. Yeah, well, I, I think um, our intention was always to, to you know, be why vertically integrated. Why do you need integrated. to own that part of that? You need to own every part of it, right? It's not. It's not necessarily need. It's that I, we just believe it, it's a it's a better experience mm-hmm. for consumers. And then if you do integrate, then you, you can lower the cost. You want to hand people off to J.P. Morgan. Yeah, it's just kind off. of like a it, it, honestly, it's a janky experience if you're like talking to, to you know speaking with us, and then you have to talk uh, to a banker, switch phones to talk to a mortgage broker, and then right. th- that coordination's not tight, and so yeah. and you can't really you know build integration from a technology standpoint to make um, the transaction more seamless. So your first was a mortgage company, mortgage. Yeah, we built a mortgage bank from the ground up, so a mm-hmm. correspondent bank, and enables us to control the experience. So you just end. started offering that. Yeah. What is that market like? Because, you know, SoFi's gotten into that, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they were, they've been trying to make it easier, too, on lots of loans and things like that. So you just felt it was the, to remove the janky part of it, correct? Yeah, it's just the coordination. And, like, <laughs> a lot of the times when you're thinking about, I, mean, I don't know if you had the experience, but when there's four to five different parties coordinating on a close, mm-hmm. there's delays. Yes. And it's a lot of hassle, and it, it creates anxiety for you as a consumer. Yeah. So in order for us to say, okay, we're really going to try to deliver on a seamless uh, move and a seamless close, mm-hmm. we have to build all the components in-house. So you're doing mortgage and now title. Talk about this new title purchase. Yeah, and so we, we've we been partners with a company called OS National for a couple of years, mm-hmm. and, and really, you know, we, we've— 
uncovered that, again, with coordination and, and various parties working on the transaction, it causes delays. Mm-hmm. And we want to make it defect-free. And so in order to do that, again, like I mentioned, we, we want to vertically integrate. So we've acquired OS National, which mm-hmm. is a 500-person title and escrow company mm-hmm. based in Atlanta, um, and re- really with the intention to build technology to enable a more seamless close. And so, so explain what an escrow company does for people who don't know. I mean, Tired. at a basic level, it's just coordinating the close. Right. right? So like the file, they're filing the basic paperwork, mm-hmm. and um, there's a lot of paperwork in the transaction. Right. And so they're just ensuring that uh, all of the documents are put in place, and they charge a fee for that. And and these so, are things, everything from lead paint. There's so many of them. There's like dozens All the disclosures. Of, right. Um, and just ensuring that uh, all the documentation for the mortgage is in place. Uh, obviously, there's title and, 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 and title insurance. The money, money, the, moving the money. Right? Yeah, holding the funds and releasing right. the funds. And so, and, and that comes with a fee. And so, I, our belief is that if we can um, leverage our, our technology backbone to automate mm-hmm. more of the processes, then we can reduce the, the cost of the transaction. What other points of pain are there? Well, I, I, think, I think when you're shopping, um, you know, obviously, we solve the the visit part, which mm-hmm. is, again, we talked about how it was confusing to me that when you find a home online, you have to enter your information through lead form just to visit that house. And right. so we want to make it really seamless to visit the house. And so, so you, you can like visit any homes. Yeah. We build the hardware to speak to the smart lock. You, you walk up to homes and you click on lock and it kind of, you get this personal open house. We've also made that possible for every home in the market. So mm-hmm. we built the system of taskers they're effectively. Because they're empty homes. Our homes are empty, but uh, other homes on MLS aren't empty. And so right. you can also schedule uh, a visit with no realtor mm-hmm. uh, with our app. And then there's two really distinct pain points we want to solve for consumers who are buying a house. So one is really around price, right? There's a lot of uncertainty on what to pay, and, and it actually creates a lot of anxiety, which you don't want to overpay. Right. And so um, we're offering the ability to pay cash um, so that you can have you know, the ability to, to offer the seller a cash offer. So you get, you're either more competitive or you can get a better deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the second piece is really you have fears around condition. And so you don't want to buy a lemon mm-hmm. is really the, sure. the net of it. And so how do we provide a guarantee, help you with the inspection, uh, so that you have peace of mind when you buy that home. It's a really important decision. It's the largest financial investment you're going to make. And so how do we make sure that you're not buying a lemon? And so we help you with the pricing well, you piece. Own the, oh, you, oh well, the houses you own, you have just inspected, presumably. That too, but we're also helping you buy homes that not, are oh, not okay. owned by Open Door. And right. so we're able to give you kind of price intelligence plus, uh, plus the ability to pay cash, mm-hmm. as well as a full inspection, which we do... Uh, very well, yeah. uh, and then provide you this guarantee, which is a 90-day buyback guarantee. So if you don't love the home uh, or there's any issues, actually, we'll, we'll buy the home back. Even if it's not an open-door home? Right. Okay. How many houses do you own now at any one time? Well, we're, we're servicing 3,500 customers a month, Okay. right? And we have you know, over a billion dollars of real estate. Okay, and you in where? In what areas of the country? So we're in twenty markets, mm-hmm. you know, all over all over the country, and, and we've really just demonstrated that one, the business has scale, mm-hmm. and two, there's demand for this product experience, basically everywhere. Right, and but they're in markets like Phoenix, where there is a, a softness. To and we've the- we've entered a variety of cities at this point. So you know, Phoenix is one example of having housing stock that's more homogenous, more new, mm-hmm. but we're also in in Dallas. We're you know, we're in uh, Sacramento, we're in Los Angeles. And so some of these cities with older housing stock um, we're also operating in. All right. And what are your pain points right now? What are the issues? Capital, because you need to buy—well, you're buying and selling houses constantly, correct? One would be the economy. If we have a recession, what happens to your business? And third, the pushback from the industry itself, which must be—they hate you, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> 
I guess it's going to be hated. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it's uh, the pain points across those three dimensions. Actually, capital is not constrained today. Okay. Obviously, we're, yes. we're well capitalized. And, right. uh, How much have you raised? We've raised $1.3 billion of equity capital and $3.5 billion of debt. Okay. That's in order to buy and sell houses. Right, right. Oh. And, and then, you know, I, I think it's an important point, which is, you know, we have a rolling portfolio of real estate, and we need to monitor the health of the economy, mm-hmm. and obviously, specifically, uh, the health of the housing market. Right. You know, we're, we're there cautious. Used to, there was a housing crisis, I recall, the mortgage crisis. But, I mean, where is the worry for you as a CEO? I think, that you're I think holding it's just, onto it, a lot of real estate that declines in prices, correct? Oh, it's just ensuring that we monitor the risk, right? right. So it's, it's not holding the asset that is right. the thing that causes anxiety or, or fear. It's really, are we um, monitoring the risk? Are we charging the appropriate fees based on uh, the volatility in the system? And then are we um, you know, geographically diverse in terms of our portfolio? And so mm-hmm. these things we spend a lot of time on, and we have obviously a very large pricing and risk team mm-hmm. to focus on this. And so... It's about, okay, can we deliver the, a fantastic customer experience? We've done that. Right now, as an organization, you know, can we manage the portfolio effectively and make sure mm-hmm. we're selling homes uh, at, the, at the right velocity? And then, you know, I think uh, the third step, which is uh, something that you mentioned, is um, ensuring that um, we just have a- enough liquidity in our system right. so we can charge low fees. Right. So the recession, how would you, how, you must be thinking about that now with all the different yield curves and everything else. And housing is always the first, especially yeah, I mean, in the market. Yeah, we, we monitor the data daily. Actually, the, the pricing models are built on that data and, and they, get, they get updated constantly. And so the, the first step is, okay, what's our perspective in terms of the demand side? Mm-hmm. Right? And then that's just a, it's a exercise in monitoring. The, the data, seeing how mm-hmm. fast homes are selling, what types of homes are in high demand, ensuring that we can um, price the homes effectively based on, on those signals. Uh, and the second is in, in making sure that we charge the right fees. And that's really, thinking about it as like our buffer for risk. And so if we're seeing signal that homes are um, still in high demand, then the fees could be lower. If mm-hmm. they're starting to slow, then the fees have to be higher. Right. And are you able to see signals of the recession right now? I mean, we're cautious. I think the, the two key metrics that we track our affordability, and that's been very high for the past five mm-hmm. or six years. Mm-hmm. And so that that um, makes us more cautious. And then, the, then there's uh, months of supply. Right. right. So we're still in a market where there's no supply, um, which uh, causes the pricing to, to stay relatively high, even though right. uh, they're not affordable. Mm-hmm. And so um, those two in tandem, um, you know, mean, means that the market is still relatively healthy, but, you know, we continue to monitor those two metrics. So what is the reaction of regular real estate agents to you? It's been mixed. I think there are certain uh, agents who really love the fact that we give their consumers choice. There's a lot of people in situations where they they need open door, Mm -hmm. right? They need the certainty of execution. They really want the simplicity. They're going through a move. They had just had a a child. Mm -hmm. They just got married. And so there's either two two dimensions that people love us for. One is uh, obviously a massively simplified transaction. It's, right, it's that's very a simple. consumer. But consumer. real estate agents don't want well, simple. Well, I, I, I think agents are using us to, to help their clients. And so in cases where um, agents are able to walk into a listing appointment with a client and saying— And sell it quick. Yeah, here's two options. You know, one is really around convenience. The other is around maximizing price. If, if you want to list and, and see if you can get more, that open doors willing to pay. And it, it does build trust with that specific agent walking into an appointment saying, here are the options. And I'm kind of agnostic to what option you choose. I want what's best for you. Right. And that's really the role of an agent is be your advisor. Yes, but they're not. Well, I, I think the great ones are. Yes, of course. Yes, that's a trap. I'm being unfair to real estate agents. Some of my, I have very good friends who are real estate agents. But I think that it's sort of like, what do I need you for mm-hmm. is what I really, what I think mm-hmm. about. Like, I think about that about lots of service people, mm-hmm. like lawyers, like 
do I need you for this? Because I'm sure we can AI this thing. Or we're an agent right now. I get approached by agents every day. Like, Carrie, do you want to write a book? I'm like, what do I need you for? I can call a publisher myself. Like, now look, I'm Kara Swisher, so I can do that. But like, can't they make, there's a lot of roles like real estate agents, agents, things like that, that don't actually, you don't get a, an economic benefit yeah, it's it's interesting you say that because I, I think there's two forms, right? So one is that I'm providing value mm-hmm. and helping you through a process that is confusing mm-hmm. and causes you stress. Right. And so that's one form. Sure. The other form is a a relationship-based services. Right. And it's that you feel obligated to use a certain person because they're a friend of a friend or your brother-in-law. And, and that's the form of um, agents that I think uh, needs to change. And mm-hmm. so it's not about necessarily feeling obligated to use someone. It's about, okay, what are the services they're providing and what are the jobs to be done? Well, I think it's more of, in real estate, it's not defined why you particularly need someone. Like, mm-hmm. you know, in some, like, for example, I sold a house in San Francisco relatively recently. I had two of them for on reasons you don't need to go into, but uh, but they were like this, the whole staging thing and everything else. And I'm like, don't you get like 10 offers and say, why do I even need to stage anything? Why do I have to spend that $2,000? Well, it'll sell more. I'm like, will it? How much more? $2,000 more? Is it 10000 Is it, this is a pain in my neck. Like, just leave it open and empty. What do I care? And it was really interesting when I started thinking about where the value changes. Why isn't there an easier way to do something that's such a significant transaction? You know, as easy as Amazon or something. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's what Open Door is tackling head right. on, which is like, you know, what is the role of the traditional process, agents included? And that includes title and escrow agents. This includes mortgage brokers. Are yeah. you going to do staging? Uh, we're not going to do staging. We actually staging. use stage homes. Um, and staging. what's funny is because we, we sell so many homes a month, we can A-B test things. Actually, we end up A-B testing staging. And does it work? Does it? It does, does it? work in certain price points in certain areas. Yeah. But it's just operationally complex. What's funny is that Ridiculous. we used to work, work with a stager in Phoenix and the max capacity was something like 20 homes a week. Mm-hmm. You know, we were doing five, so you really know, now help. we're doing four to 500 a month. Right. And so just like, there's just no way to really make that a scalable part of the process. But also I just think it's, to your point, I, I'd rather just say to the buyer, here's, here's a less, home here's for that is money. more affordable yeah. as opposed to wrapping it up and then like removing all the things. Who do you hope to replace? What do you, who, I mean, again, real estate agents really, I, I see them coming after the way hotel people came after, come after Airbnb. Like you have a lot of people who are coming after you. How do you answer that? What, what, are, you, what are you worried about? Well, I, I don't think it's about replacing realtors. It's mm-hmm. about building a better experience to transact. Why not replacing realtors? Why not? Why, I why think there's certain roles that realtors do that, that are, are useful to consumers today mm-hmm. and, and largely based on being your advisor. So it's mm-hmm. like local expertise and, and uh, where to live and, and obviously some financial components, whether you should be able to, uh, you, should, you, you can financially afford to buy that home is one, one big question. But I, I do believe that today realtors spend a great deal of time uh, down two dimensions that will be um, automated away. Mm-hmm. The first is uh, lead generation, which right. just talked about relationship building. Um, the second is project management. There's just a lot of different steps in the transaction, and you have to coordinate across multiple parties. And actually, software does a really good job of automating yeah. those pieces. And so, in the future, I think realtors so will look like financial advisors. So they will do what? And give you advice on where to live and help you help you build comfort in that decision. Isn't the data there? Won't you be? I able think to it's do possible that? to automate that away too. Yeah. All right, so what's next for you guys? Just more, like you have competitors. You have a couple different competitors. What is your biggest worry? 
Well, I think what we're focused on is now the demand side, Mm -hmm. right? So we spent the past four years building a way to sell your home online in in five minutes or less. And get people to buy it. And I think we've done an excellent job of scaling that business and showing that there's high conversion. You know, at at a 6.5% fee, one in two sellers convert. And so it's extremely high converting. What's unique about it is that the value proposition is also interesting. It cuts through the clutter. Mm -hmm. And people just want to understand, okay, what, what can they get today? Um, and then the next chapter for us is how do we build a buyer experience that consumers love? How do we eliminate all of the pain points for people shopping and buying a home um, and then tie the two together? And I think in the medium term and certainly the long term, Opener will be a marketplace for real estate um, where you can you know list with us, you can sell to us, and also you can buy from us and buy any home on the market. All right. This is really fascinating, Eric. This is a, I'm fascinated with this company, and we'll see where it goes. Um, I think the recession certainly is something that is probably the, your biggest challenge of anything else. Yeah, I think managing managing through a recession will demonstrate yeah. that the business is anti-cyclical. I think we'll see demand increase for the product. Again, when there's more volatility, yeah. we see consumers flocking to the website. What is your ultimate goal? What do you want to? What do you want to sell it, or do you want to? No, I, I think we want we want to ensure that every single person who's moving is a participant on OpenDoor.com and build an experience that's actually delightful. Do you want to go public or? Or it's certainly something that we've discussed at the board level. Yeah. Um, we're not; it's not on the horizon today. Don't uh, let Keith sell it. <laughs> okay, just don't. It's a good idea, actually. I said that to Airbnb. I'm like, don't let those idiots sell it. It's actually <laughs> fascinating if you can do it right. That's really, I think, the biggest challenge. Yeah, it requires focus and patience. Thanks to Open Door CEO Eric Wu for joining me on the show. We're going to take another break now. We'll be back after this to hear my conversation with CEO of Evite, Victor Cho. Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are always ready to help you personalize your insurance plan so you can create a policy that fits your needs. You can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. And you can always call one of the State Farm agents in neighborhoods across the country. Get a great rate without sacrificing great service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. This is Recode Decode, and I'm Kara Swisher. Now we're going to play an interview I did with Victor Cho, the CEO of Evite, which is owned by Liberty Media and is based in Los Angeles. He's been the CEO since 2014, and I was really intrigued by his resume, which includes stints at Microsoft iVillage and Eastman Kodak. Back in the day, I had visited Rochester, New York a couple times, which is where Kodak is headquartered. And in 2001, they bought a pioneering digital photography website called Ophoto, which they rebranded as Kodak Gallery. It's something I covered when I was a reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Victor was brought in to run Kodak Gallery at a really crucial time, September 2008, which was little more than a year after the first iPhone came out. Obviously, this story doesn't end well for Eastman Kodak, but Victor said he learned a lot from working there. They actually seeded their own demise Mm -hmm. in that they they did crazy things, which I never knew. They invented the digital camera. Mm -hmm. And they had many executive conversations because I was meeting with, there were a bunch of very long-tenured execs at Kodak that had been there for like 20, 30 years. And I asked them that question, like, how did you guys miss the digital curve? And their answer really surprised me. It was, we didn't miss the digital curve. We knew the curve was coming. We actually invented the camera. Mm -hmm. We mistimed the curve, and we mistimed how fast it was going to drop. So literally, they were tracking the rise of film. And every year, they said, well, digital is supposed to supplant film, but film keeps growing, and it keeps growing at an accelerated rate. And at some point, they started believing their numbers, which is maybe we're wrong. Maybe there's not going to be this massive implosion. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, when the implosion came, it hit, and it 
was so precipitous. There was there was no way that business I think was going to. You turn know, I around. think when when Apple put the phone in the camera and got really good, I think that happened all at the same time. Yeah. All the phones in the cameras. Apple did a lot of damage in that regard, yeah. and so did the concept of, of of Facebook of how it was using photos mm-hmm. and digital photography. It was really interesting because. They were aware of it. They were aware of it, but yeah. it was sort of like, well, we're in the horse business, so what do we want us to do kind of thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it, was, it wasn't that, and what happened is it decimated a city. It, you know, yes. that, was, that city was just, it was depressing to be there. Oh, and they yeah. certainly had so much innovation going on for so long. Yeah. The one thing they brought to the very last, one of the last times they appeared at our All Things Digital Conference was one of their high-level cameras. They took the most stunning pictures, and it, mm-hmm. we took pictures of all the attendees, which was interesting. And they took this amazing picture of Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. I think it must have been 2005 then. Uh, this portrait that I think will go down in history, and it was this incredibly high. It was it was one of these high resolution cameras that was st- absolutely stunning. Mm-hmm. And I thought they're so innovative, and they still got run over, which yeah. was interesting. How, why? How did you get to this? How did you get to Evite? What were you thinking about when you were coming to run it? Uh, so, uh, right before this, I took uh, basically a year sabbatical in between CEO roles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I, I called my recruiting friends and said, hey, what's out there that's interesting? Mm. This really struck me on, I think, on two levels. Uh, one was I, of course, had strong affinity with the brand. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got a very long history of Eva. My wife has thrown parties forever. So, it's kind of a tool that I'm very familiar mm-hmm. with. Uh, two, it was clear just looking outside in that it had really missed the boat over the last four or five years mm-hmm. on where the world had gone. Because it was it was literally the same product it experience was, yeah. in 2014 when I joined as it was in 2008. But if you think of what happened between th- 2008 and 2014, you mm-hmm. had probably two of the biggest changes in social interaction hit the world. You had the phone, get scale, and you had Facebook. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that the business was still around was fascinating to me. Me too. Uh, yeah. So I was like, I think there's something here. Uh, and that's what I was brought on to do. It was kind of come in and do a diagnostic and say, is this, is this a brand that's going to continue to, because it had started to fall mm-hmm. um, starting around 2009-ish. Uh, so the director from the board was, hey, is this something that you can turn around or, uh, or not? Mm-hmm. How did you conceive of the business when you took over? Because there were a spate of companies like Evite. There were calendaring companies. There were a couple different genres in that that people then just used. Um, as utilities, really. Yeah. And, you know, Zuckerberg, uh, Facebook, called Facebook a utility, and it started to add and attach features yeah. on that were like, Evite-like, or whatever, whatever area he wanted to take over. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you look at, at that? when Because there were things that just, did, just stopped existing and then got integrated into other things. When the opportunity for Evite came, mm-hmm. I applied a lot of my training from Intuit, which was, trying to understand what is the life cycle around this business. Mm-hmm. And it was clear Evite was just touching a very small sliver. Which is invites. Exactly. It was right. the invitation point. But if you right. looked at all of the pain points before an event mm-hmm. and all of the magic and pain after an event, there was no mega brand that owned that space. Right. And to me, that was one of the big draws, which is, can, can I take this business and actually extend it into a much broader life cycle around events. What it was was essentially you send out invites to people, and then you—it was a, an RSVP system, essentially. Yeah. Talk about what you thought were the most important pain points, right, initially. Yeah, you know, it's funny. It's We run the Net Promoter Engine, mm-hmm. which is kind of our core customer engine, and a lot of the hypothesized pain points that we ended up going after turned out not to be huge pain points mm-hmm. at the end of the day. Uh, but the two, the two biggest, and a lot of them we're still grappling with, one is the— pre-event pain point. So we had a theory, which is, when you come to Evite now, you you know the party, you know the venue, you have actually right. have a lot of details. And mm-hmm. we felt like there's probably a lot of pain up front in that organization space. So that was one bucket. 
Uh, there was another big bucket, which we knew, which was right between the point of sending the invitation and the point of the party. Mm-hmm. That's actually probably the most emotional stress if any of you have sent a party. Mm-hmm. Like you click the button and you immediately go into stress mode. Like, right. Oh my God, I've got to get this party together. Right. Who's going to come? Are they going to show up? And so um, those were two areas that we decided to look at and explore. Mm-hmm. Uh, turns out the first one is really hard. <laughs> There's so many services and right. Google's really damn good right. at actually solving a lot of your right. upfront needs. Right. So we ended up spending a lot more energy on that um, kind of post-invitation uh, before event. That's where we're spending a lot of cycles right now is how do we take friction out of that process. Friction at the post-event, meaning? Yeah, meaning you've sent out your invitation, right. and now how can we actually make that a better experience for you um, from that point to the point of the party as well as after the party? Talk about the, the competitors in the space a little bit. The main ones have been the big portals, essentially. They were called portals before, but the Googles, the Facebooks, the... Is that how you look at it or not? Uh, the, I'd say the competitive... Matrix is three big blocks. So there are other invitation sites Mm -hmm. that compete with us that really, at the end of the day, offer an invitation Mm -hmm. function. Our service has now gotten actually significantly more broad than a lot of them. So there's a lot of them are still just playing in that invitation niche. Mm-hmm. And they're going after things like, hey, we've got great designs, et cetera. But right. they're not thinking of the end-to-end spectrum. Um, those are all pretty small. We're still you know, probably eight to, 10, 8 to 20 times bigger than all the nearest competitors there. So we actually don't spend a huge amount of time um, focused on them. Facebook, of course, with Facebook events is a big, I call it potential existential competitor, mm-hmm. but not really a direct competitor because right. they've been going after... Much more broad events. Like things the like, lacrosse team or... Yeah, um, or like, hey, I'm throwing a block party. If you mm-hmm. want to show up, show up. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, all of the research and feedback we've gotten is if you really care about the person seeing the invitation, opening it, looking at it, then Facebook's not the right system for them because mm-hmm. so many times it's just buried in right. uh, and, and all of the other stuff that Facebook has. Uh, the third big competitor is, is literally still uh, email. It's mm-hmm. still email and text. Mm-hmm. People organizing rapidly, sending out a text or sending out a group email. So talk a little bit about how you looked at it. When, so you get there in 2014, and you do feel like this is a company that's been around for a long mm-hmm. time and hadn't iterated a whole lot. Talk about that journey of doing that. Like you have a space that, again, it's a useful app, but mm-hmm. how do you move it into a, something that doesn't get run over? The first phase, we've actually taken the business through what I call three different phases of um, repair and growth. So the, the very first phase when I joined in 2014 was in some ways the simplest, which was what do we need to do to rectify all of the customer pain points mm-hmm. that haven't been resolved over the last six or seven years. And so uh, if, you, if you literally would look at the list of things that the customers were complaining about, it was you know, hundreds of items long and each one you would look at. And you'd say, God, that's important. We can't, we can't go not do you know, mm-hmm. the mobile web. Can't, you know, can't not work. Right, <laughs> right. The apps actually need to function. And so, literally, probably for the first two years or so, we did nothing except pound through that list mm-hmm. and say, these are important to customers. Let's fix those things. And that was actually enough to bring the business into stability. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas it had been actually starting to uh, degrade around 2008 and had started to accelerate in its decline mm-hmm. up until 2014. So around. Midway, I want to say midway 2015, early 2016-ish, we basically stabilized the platform and prevented the what I call the MySpace slide. for The MySpace slide? <laughs> that was a slide. <laughs> that went down and yeah. never stopped. Wow. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is most social systems that start the mm-hmm. negative flywheel mm-hmm. just die. Right. Um, actually, Ophoto was one. Right. That was, that was what I was fighting in my first, in, yeah. in my first CEO role. It was fighting a negative social network. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just so much negative momentum in that system that it's it's very hard to stabilize. Well, how, why? What to explain for people? Because a lot of people listening here run companies. Why is it hard to stabilize? 
Uh, it's the thing that the dynamic that gives it organic and viral growth to begin with. Oops, sorry. With, uh, which is, you know, I get you into the network, it gets more valuable. Mm -hmm. The minute that turns negative, it has the exact same negative momentum mm -hmm. and it's very hard to overcome. So that, that was kind of phase one. Mm -hmm. uh, phase two of the business was then figuring out how do we do more than just be stable? Because of course you need a, a you need a growing user base curve ultimately sure. to have a, a successful business. So we spent a couple of years in almost startup mode, for lack of a better term. We just tested a lot of different things and threw a lot of different things at the wall. Again, all based on customer input. And in, let's see, the winter of 28, 2017, we launched SMS, mm -hmm. which is um, text-based invitations. And right. that was really the big driver that kicked us back into growth. Mm -hmm. uh, so now we're in the third phase of the business, which is, hey, now that we've got that user curve back on an incline, we're focusing on the revenue model. All right, so, so talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so the uh, Evite for the longest time has been effectively purely an ad-based business, mm -hmm. which... Uh, to your observation, right? As a utility, sometimes that can be difficult because we don't have the same kind of you know daily no, frequent use, yeah. right? So that's to our detriment. Mm -hmm. The thing that we have to our advantage is we have amazing context, right? Because we know, wow, these people, are, you know, this these two million people are about to throw a children's birthday party, mm -hmm. for instance. So that's mm -hmm. super valuable for advertisers sure. to get in front of those folks. Right. Um, we'll get even, into privacy later, but go ahead. But they're yeah. sort of giving you permission to know what they're doing, but go ahead. It's different now, but go ahead. Yeah. Um, so that's been, for, for the longest time, uh, the business model. Uh, right now, we are pushing the business into more of a balanced model. So we're going to, of course, still have that advertising value proposition, but we're launching our uh, premium and ad-free services. Mm -hmm. So we've been focused on that for the last couple of years. Right. And so when you move into premium thing, why would people pay? If they're not you, Getting people to pay for something they're used to getting for free is a really difficult proposition. It is. It is. There are... Uh, there's a couple of different vectors right now. So one is there, there are definitely a group of people that just want the best. They want the best thing possible, and they're willing to pay for that. So there's a group that it's not even that they want to take the ads away. It's, hey, you have a premium offering, and I want all the bells and whistles. I want to be sure that it's the right thing. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of one segment. Um, there's another segment where there's, of course, a group of invitation types that are more prone to wanting to be ad-free. So if you think of, like, weddings. Right. Uh, we do a lot of weddings or... Uh, baby showers. So there's, I have there's... never been invited to a wedding on eBay. Yeah, no, we we do a lot of. Weddings. I have never been invited. <laughs> I'm trying to think. Lots of kids' birthday parties, but yeah. not. That's our that's, that's our biggest category. category. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then the third big one, which actually in in my mind is probably the going to be the biggest market, is the professional market. Mm -hmm. It's those companies that are still using email and and dropping in, you know, digitized big you know JPEGs basically. Mm -hmm. um, and for them, they they clearly want an ad free environment because it's a corporate message. It's and how big message. how big of a business is this for you right now? Oh, in terms of revenue, uh, this year will probably be. I can talk about maybe revenue mix because mm -hmm. Liberty, because sure. uh, uh, privately held, we're we're going to be around thirty five ish percent premium, premium versus advertising. What you know, it's interesting because I was talking to the Airbnb people about this, talking about adjacent businesses. Why haven't you ever gotten into the space business, the, the things that are adjacent yourselves? You know, that's one of, the, one of the first things I did is I absolutely looked at a ton of those places. Mm -hmm. uh, my, my general take is those are actually very interesting sister businesses. They're very interesting adjacent businesses. There's some top-line synergy to be had. Uh, very few of them would really benefit from being part of Evite. Mm -hmm. like those are actually all standalone value propositions or networks Why that, is that? Are, that are going to... I think it's just the value that we bring as an invitation platform mm -hmm. provides some acceleration to those businesses, but never sufficient energy to, you know, immediately 100 exit, if that right. makes sense. Right. Like, those businesses will need to 
build their scale on their own merit. So when you think about shifting the culture of the company to do this, how hard is it these days to do that from a—you said you acted like a startup, but how—you're not really a startup. It's one of the draws, going back to your question, one of the appeals to me of joining Eva was that it's from an employee size. It actually is almost like a Series A or early Series B in scale. So Mm -hmm. we're 110, 120 employees, but we're sitting on this massive infrastructure that reaches, you know, sends out 2 billion, you know, emails and and, hundreds of millions of invitations. So we actually get to move uh, at the speed of a company that's fairly small, Mm -hmm. which is great. So no, I'd say if you, know, if you had to draw the spectrum of you know super big company kind of based on our footprint versus startup, we we still operate much more in a startup vibe, I would say. But how do you keep people engaged in that? Because the startup sector is got is sort of the air is a little bit out of it right now. Can you ask that one again in terms of how? Well, you guys are based in Los Angeles, right? Which yeah. is a very different environment. I'll talk about that yeah, next. Yeah. But how do you keep that engaged when you have a twenty-year-old startup? It's fast. I find eBay fascinating yeah. in that regard. I don't, uh, if I get the gist of your question, I don't think there's a big drain on the fact that we have existing mm-hmm. infrastructure and brand mm-hmm. because one of the things that I brought in was like, nothing is sacred at the end of the day, right? Let's, right. In, in some ways, let's think about the business on a moving forward basis. What do the customers need and want? And let's go chase that. So the, the only real big drag from a legacy perspective is the drag on the uh, that's a result of the complexity of the infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So we do get some folks that say, well, wow, if we were just doing this from scratch, we'd be able to build that tomorrow and launch. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, that's true. At the same time, you don't have, you know, 100 million folks that you can put something in front of and test. Right. So, you know, we get this amazing scale platform. We, have, we, we can't move quite as fast as a brand new startup, but of course then we have the scale that a startup would die for in terms of a testing platform and environment. Right. Most of the companies like Evite don't exist anymore. And mm-hmm. I want to know why you keep existing. Like, I, I, I use it. It's a useful yeah. platform. But it, to make the transition into, you, you obviously went to mobile, which was critical. Yep. You, you're trying to add on other kinds of businesses. How do you keep a long-term business going? Because I see what happens, I think, a lot is these startups either get eaten up or bought or go out of business, essentially. Mm-hmm. And there's not a lot of longevity to a lot of internet platforms unless they have a monolithic character like Facebook, essentially. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's fascinating. One, one of the things I was most worried about and we would chat with the uh, exec team that I put together is, is what are the existential risks to the business as mm-hmm. we see it? Uh, and one of my theories going in was absolutely that, which is like a small mobile-centric startup could effectively get the early traction with a better proposition, start mobile first because right. we were behind, and effectively right, take over the space. Uh, like millennials. Turn- this is the millennial invitation yeah. service. Yeah. Uh, turns out that's hard for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, the nature of uh, at least the, the types of parties that we touch, which are these kind of high-value moments, are not going to happen all in mobile. Mm-hmm. They are going to be a hybrid between text and email. And the email infrastructure that we built is... Pretty, it's pretty massive and pretty complex. So mm-hmm. you have all these tech startups who start up, and they're like, well, we have a tech solution. It's like, oh, yeah, but that only solves a little narrow niche. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's definitely a superior platform to have the full end-to-end, full cross-platform, text, email, shareable links. You can put it onto Facebook and other things. Right. Those are all things that we added um, after I joined. Mm-hmm. So um, that's one, makes it hard to disrupt. Uh, two, two, the yeah. fact that our, our core user base is, our core model is free, mm-hmm. so it's always harder to dis- disrupt free with free. So then you're kind of in the boat of, can you out-deliver an experience versus us? And as I mentioned, like we are hardcore focused on the customer, um, our net promoter rating, 
uh, is up in the high 70s or low 80s for the experience. And you know, that's five years of constant iteration and fixes. So mm-hmm. it's it's not impossible by any means, but it would it's harder. We have a, we have a really good competitive position from that perspective. I'm going to talk a little bit about acquisitions and being acquired. First, why haven't you been acquired? I'm sure there's been a million attempts because you fit in nicely to a lot of businesses. Yeah, now it's a it's like it's a great question. There definitely are a continual stream of of inbound inquiries. I'm thinking Amazon would be perfect buyer for you. Amazon has some interest. There's a. It's funny when you look at the landscape of the mega potential mega. I call them the vacuum cleaners that vacuum also. <laughs> Because, like your MySpace wide and vacuum cleaners, but you're yeah, right. But it's true. I mean, it's, it's yep. true, right? These things yeah. are just so massive now that they just, which is they're right now that they've got the scale. They just get big enough, wait for something no, actually, to get interesting. No, actually, not going to be allowed to, Victor, just so you know. Congress, <laughs> oh, Congress has a thing or two to say about true. it. Um, but no, no, yeah, no, Amazon, there's there's some very interesting landing spots, I think, mm-hmm. uh, potential landing spots for the business in the long-term basis. So how do you look at that when you're sort of, because it's sort of like mid-list authors, mid-list, like all these companies that do have a, a nice niche where do they end up on a bigger scale? How do you run a company that's not huge but not small, mm-hmm. not a startup, but and has a great brand? It's a really interesting question for a whole lot of startups like yours. Yeah, for uh, uh, for us, I'm always telling the Eventbrite's team. Eventbrite's another one. Like yeah. One, yeah. yeah, although they hit that magic scale inflection point, right. of course, yeah. right, and went out. Right. Uh, we're still at the point where I think, you know, we could 5 or 10x the business as it exists because, again, we, we haven't, We've been playing catch up for such a long time. We finally now got a healthy platform where we can kind of build these revenue streams on top of it. So regardless of where we ended up, I think there's a there's a standalone path, which could mm-hmm. be to just get this thing much, much larger. One simple example of that, we're not in the international markets at all. Oh, Most people don't that. know that. Wow. Yeah, we, we are 90% in US and Canada. 90. So once we get everything working comfortably, it's like, wow, you could double, you know, maybe not double load overnight, but you could you know, double the business with international expansion. Because mm-hmm. what you see in the international markets are a bunch of teeny tiny companies that are even smaller scale. It's, you know, it's the 10 people in Germany who've come up with some kind of interesting offering. There's, there's no pan-European or pan-Asian Evite that's out there. Mm-hmm. So that could be a natural expansion mm-hmm. point. Uh, the professional market that I talked about can be a, a fairly massive market. Um, not as much uh, scale from a usage perspective, but definitely more dollars. Mm-hmm. How is the LA scene? Can just very briefly, because you know Snapchat had been struggling, but has now sort of recovered itself a little bit. But there hasn't been, you know, you mentioned MySpace slide. Yeah. There hasn't. It, there's very few businesses, big businesses in Los Angeles, tech businesses. There. Yeah, from well, uh, aside from Hollywood, obviously yeah. Disney, you could consider them a tech so business. I'd, I'd answer that a couple ways. One is. I thought I'd have a hard time finding good talent, mm-hmm. local talent. That hasn't been the case. Now, we're still fairly small. So, you know, we've, we've hired, I don't know, 60 or 70 people over the last three or four years, not, you know, 600 or 700 mm-hmm. or, or thousands. I think if you were at that scale, you would definitely run into a kind of a market-based problem in terms of supply-demand. But um, for the smaller companies, the, the talent's great. You get a lot of people that want to move from, like, some of the big, like, some of the big studios have great talent, like, right. coming out of, you know, animation studios, etc. So there's a lot of that kind of cross-industry pollination. Uh, and we're actually seeing a lot of people from the Bay Area mm-hmm. interested in coming down to L.A. It's still a tiny bit cheaper right. than, yeah. uh, than up in here, uh, up here in the Bay, so. Is there a different ethos there among the tech companies? Is there a tightness to them? Nothing that I could point my finger yeah, on. Yeah, there, there hasn't been. It's really yeah. There's not one here. It's just a monolith, essentially, yeah. right now, which is interesting. It's yeah. an interesting period in Silicon Valley. Yeah. 
for entrepreneurs. Thank you, Victor. I really appreciate it. We're here with Victor Cho, the CEO of Evite. Thank you for coming on the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Victor, where can people find you online? Uh, Your I'll, framework, for example. Oh, my frameworks are all at victorcho.com. Okay, and Evite is what? Evite is E-V-I-T-E dot com. And Twitter, do you have a tweet? Uh, you all don't tweet that much. Yeah, no, we don't have a huge... You don't do. We don't have a huge... I don't, oh, no, yeah, I don't tweet much at all. Yeah, that's... I have a whole separate rant against um, the social networks and all of that. Oh, which, really? Oh, yeah. Another time. <laughs> what about them? Give me a very quick one. My soundbite would be, these social systems have created an environment, which is I call... It's this crazy environment of sharing with ulterior motive, Mm -hmm. um, which is completely damaging to psychology and behavior and the fabric of many things. You are (laughs) my best friend now. You know that's my topic. Anyway, if you like this episode, we really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our newest podcast, Reset. Just search for it in your podcasting app of choice. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then. HBO Max brings all of HBO to your fingertips, plus an epic list of new Max originals. Whether you're into animation, classic movies, or binge-worthy series, HBO Max's suggested collections are curated by real humans, not robots, so you find the right thing to watch every time. With thousands of options for you and the family to choose from, it's the streaming platform of your dreams. HBO Max, where HBO meets so much more. Start streaming now at hbomax.com. Listener.